Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton and not joining me today, Mr. Daly, my my neighbor, my frenemy, my colleague, my typical co-host. But that's a good thing because I've got Mr. Adam Burns straight out of the UK representing the DNF F1 podcast. Mr. Adam Burns, my friend, how the heck are you? Really good, Mark. Thanks for having me on the show and uh, hope I can do it justice. Uh, It's been a while and uh, I'm looking forward to talking about F1 with you, mate. I'm so happy you can join. And for those of you that don't know, uh, Adam is the lead, the the producer, the host of an exceptionally good British-based Formula One podcast, DNF1. My friend, I've never had the opportunity to ask you this before, but maybe take us on a bit of a journey and walk us through the origins of your show, the inspiration for the show, and some of the learnings that you've had during that during that process and that experience. Um, well, thanks for asking. And of course, thanks for the kind words. So I guess my origins in terms of F1 podcasting would probably stem from being a fan of the sport for probably almost a quarter of a century now, to show my age a little bit here. And I've always loved F1 with a passion. It's always been my favorite sport. It's always was the thing I wanted to do growing up was be an F1 driver. Um, always wanted to be the next Michael Schumacher, if you like. But obviously for many people, that dream never materializes and you just enjoy the sport as a fan. And one day it just kind of clicked to me that I love Formula One so much. I love talking about it with friends. Um, admittedly, probably didn't have too many friends that liked F1. And I thought, why not make a podcast? hours of it. I listened to a lot of football or soccer podcasts, if you like, particularly with my team. And I thought F1 doesn't really have too many podcasts. They had one for the BBC. They had um, one or two other podcasts that were doing the rounds at the time. So I figured, why not? So a few years ago, I started DNF1 with a friend of mine in my old flat in Greenwich in East London. And we just pretty much went from there a few years later and uh, a thousand subscribers on YouTube now and many more listeners on pod platforms everywhere. Of course, if you are one of those people that came over from before, thank you so much, of course, for your support and patronage. And it's been an incredible experience and it it allows me to speak to other great podcasters like yourself, Mark. And I suppose the one thing I could say, if I could offer any advice to anyone that wants to make a podcast or get involved in the discussion when it comes to Formula One or any podcast topic that you can think of is just be authentic, be yourself. It's pretty much just having a discussion with friends or other people alike that share the same interest in the topic you want to talk about and just, yeah, just enjoy it really. Be yourself. I think that is the number one tip because I, admittedly, when I tried to start, I wanted to try and be 
Um, oh, I'm just trying to think of a few people off the top of my head here. Just someone like Matt Gallagher, for example, or Tom Clarkson, who does the F1 podcast um, for Formula One Beyond the Grid podcast, for example. You know, you want to be all those main guys. And to be fair, you just got to be yourself. You've got to find your voice. You just got to find a rhythm that works for you and then just enjoy it. And I think the more that you enjoy it and the more the consistent you are, which of course is another top tip, I suppose, be consistent, the larger your community will become and just be patient. I, I don't think if anyone wants to get into podcasting just to make money, that's fine. But I think the number one reason to get into podcasting is just because you love the topic so much or love it with a passion that that's what you want to do. If you want to make money, if you're good and you're consistent, that will come later. Don't worry about chasing the big bucks. That will come eventually. <laughs> I, I love, by the way, the direction you took that question because I was going to ask you next, you know what, if you were if you were starting over, what would you do differently? And I couldn't agree more with your comments about being authentic. And I think some or maybe most of our listeners know that this isn't my first podcast. It's not even my first F1 podcast. And when I did my first podcast, I was... I spent so much time and so much energy being somebody that I wasn't. And I'd, I'd been a big consumer of podcasts for 10 years at that point. You know, I bought an iPad or iPod shuffle back in February of 2005 because I wanted a way to listen to podcasts when I was out running. And I spent a lot of time when I was doing my previous podcast trying to be Jalen and Jacoby. And I was trying to be Bill Simmons and I was trying to be all of these other people. And ultimately, people see through that and they recognize it's not your normal cadence and it's not your normal tenor. So I couldn't agree with you more about uh, just being authentic and one of the things that's really worked for me is with the exception of just a couple of other very specific f1 podcasts i don't listen to many because i don't i don't want to be influenced and i don't want any of those podcasts to inform the way that i approach this one um, so i thought that was a really great recommendation that you had my friend what year did you start dnf1 so we started around 2020. So it wasn't long after, well, it was kind of in the middle of uh, the sea, if you like, in 2020. Um, don't want to say that because I don't want your uh, content to be hampered by using that particular word. <laughs> but it was during that period in 2020. And I think it was always in the works. I don't think it was affected or inspired, if you like, to put something out during that time. But obviously there was a lack of content because there wasn't any F1 going along because of how the world was at the time. So yeah, early 2020, as I said, we, we just started it in a flat, um, myself and Courtney, who still does it with me now, um, part of the panel for DNF1. And yeah, we just went from there. Of course, you know, since we last spoke, we've added a new panel member, Lee Wallington, who's a good friend of mine, uh, known for a very, very long time, loves his F1. So we've got him on board. And yeah, he just goes from strength to strength. And and now, Mark, as I said, we've seen so many different F1 podcasts in that community now. It's great to see so many people having their voice and being a part of that. And I suppose, if I may, you know, you, you mentioned listening to other shows and, and and like me, you know, you want to try and be the next person here or next or next this or next that. And you think, you know, you just got to be yourself. One thing I will suggest though, is that there's always ways to look to improve at what you do as a host or as a panelist or someone offering some insight. If you want to get better, there's nothing wrong in taking inspiration and learning lessons from what other people do. And it, and it doesn't have to be the biggest shows either. I mean, I look at some of the bigger shows. I mean, obviously, I'm a big fan of your show, Mark. I've learned a lot from listening to what you do as a host. And I've taken that onto my own show. And I've done that with other shows as well. And I'm pretty sure, you know, not to be a little bit cocky, but I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if one or two people that have got their own shows have listened to my show or someone else's show and thought, yeah, this person does this 
this works, let's try that. It doesn't always work. It's not an exact science, but if you're willing to learn and grow and always take constructive feedback and not be too hard on yourself, you're always going to get better. You just got to keep enjoying what you're doing. That's the most important thing. You you bring up 2020 and 2020 was obviously a unique period for reasons that we don't need to get into. But we we had started the podcast that I had done previous to this one back at the beginning of 2019. And I remember at the time doing a deep dive into internet F1 podcast. And you could probably reasonably subscribe to and listen to them all in the same week. And today, if you go on to Spotify or if you go on to Apple Podcasts and you search for Formula One podcast, you're going to be inundated. There's 100, 200 plus. And I think sometimes it can be Sometimes it can be a little discouraging because you sometimes feel, or at least sometimes I feel that I'm competing for uh, a, a non-infinite a non-infinite audience. Um, but at the same time, it can also be encouraging that it just speaks to the appetite and the hunger that there is for F1 content. And typically, if somebody reaches out to me and they say, hey, this is something I'm doing, um, I don't take it wrong. And I'm more than happy to have a conversation with them about, hey, here's what's worked for us. Um, and here's what didn't work for us. And here's some things you might want to try because ultimately, it, it doesn't hurt us. If there's other great F1 podcasts out there, it probably actually helps us. And then the only other comment I would make as well is we've been at this game for so long and I know the show has a lot of advertising, but I promise you we are we are losing money every single month. And I think that goes back to that comment that you made about, hey, we're doing this not necessarily for money. And it, you know, maybe we get there, but that's not why we do it. And and we do it because we we love it and we ha- love having the conversation. And I think for Daly and I over here in, in Canada, well, the F1 audience is exponentially bigger than it was five years ago. We still don't really have a lot of people to talk to F1 about. So this this podcast is more of an excuse for us once or twice a week to just sit down and have a conversation with, with a friend about, about F1. But my friend, any other takeaways or any other learnings that you would share with somebody that wanted to start their own F1 podcast? I love the point about being authentic. I love the point about, you know what, listen to other podcasts, look for best practices and try to adopt them if they work. But any other thoughts that you would share or best practices that you might recommend um i suppose one thing i would say is be if you want it to be good and you want the quality to be good of course you know paying attention to feedback is important and sometimes obviously you don't want to take too much attention to people that are just being outrightly negative or i mean for example on my show the amount of times that people have come at us and said they didn't like this because I referred to Sir Lewis Hamilton as Sir Lewis Hamilton too often, or the British bias, or uh, if I'm saying something nice about Max Verstappen, you know, it, it, people don't like that for whatever reason. Um, you can never tailor your show to fit the needs of every individual listener. So don't bother trying, just do what you want to do. And even if 1% of your audience hates what you do, Focus on the 99 that love it. And if if I may, Mark, to add another piece of advice as well, for people that want to start a podcast, and I think this is quite important, you might listen to or see shows like ours, for example, when you see the equipment, you hear the audio and you think, oh my God, how much do these guys spend on this equipment? And of course, I'm not going to lie, you do require some level of investment, but not every single show needs to start out that way how you can make anyone can make a podcast doesn't matter what the topic is all you need is a laptop and a microphone you don't even need a webcam if you're not doing a video podcast start small if you already have a laptop you only need to spend about 50 pounds or 50 bucks on on a microphone that's of a decent quality and off you go 
and that and that's and that would be my best piece of advice do not feel you need to spend a ridiculous amount of money to make a podcast start small build up your confidence see if this is for you if it's not you haven't spent a lot of money and it's fine but of course as it grows and you want your content to get better and you want the quality of it to improve you can make small investments here and there but you don't need to spend ten thousand dollars on an amazing podcast studio that someone like Joe Rogan has, for example, you do not need to do that. Just start small, <laughs> build yourself up, and and enjoy the enjoy the journey. That's the most important thing. This this may shock a lot of people, but I mix and edit our podcasts in GarageBand. And if you don't know what GarageBand is, it's the free audio application that comes with every Macintosh computer that I've never needed to invest because I've never needed anything more sophisticated than that and the only and we're going to pivot i promise we're going to talk some f1 which i think we're both excited to do but the only other thing that i would add is for every podcast that sees an amazing immediate uptake you know the caller daddies of the world that go from nothing to 100 miles an hour in four weeks um, there's 199 podcasts that grow very very slowly and i i was sharing this story with some of my very best friends yesterday but the previous podcast that i did uh, which was called flash f1 we did it for a couple of years and just couldn't get traction couldn't get traction couldn't get traction and we were getting the two or three hundred episodes every single week and it was it was a real struggle and eventually i got discouraged despite the fact that i was doing it with a couple of very very talented people including steph wentworth who's gone on to have an amazing career in in motorsports journalism and motorsports media but eventually i, I pulled the plug during the pandemic actually shortly after the pandemic break ended in 2020 and a couple of years later i went back to look at the analytics of the episode Episodes, and there we were. We were plodding along, getting our two or three hundred downloads an episode. And that last episode that we did had thousands of downloads. And I just I pulled the plug too soon. So I think my message being that success isn't immediate, and it's something you need to work for, and not to become discouraged. So my friend, let's take let's take a quick break, pay some of those proverbial bills. I'm sure we've got an Athletic Greens ad podcast ad read lined up for Mr. Daly. But when we get back, I want to jump into the 2023 Formula One season. We'll be back in a jiffy. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. 
Welcome back to the podcast. As always, up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton. I am incredibly fortunate today to be joined by Adam Burns of the DNF1 podcast. We are here to talk a little bit about the 2023 F1 season. Of course, we are only three races in, but boy, have there been some surprises so far. And I think what I'd like to do today, and we talked a little bit about this offline, is dig in a bit to some of the big predictions that people had coming into the season that have been completely off the mark. And I think the first one that I really want to talk about is Fernando Alonso. And the basis of this conversation is an article that was written by Oliver Harden over at planetf1.com. And he he addressed a couple of the speculatory topics that people were speaking to quite regularly coming into the season. But he writes as it respect to Alonso, he says, it takes guts to walk out on a team on course for fourth in the Constructors' Championship for one with just 20 points from the first 13 races of a season. But come July last year, Fernando Alonso had nothing to lose. Like Daniel Ricciardo before him, Alonso took one look around Enstone and concluded that Alpine Renault lacked the commitment and wherewithal to bother F1's front runners on their current trajectory, so decided to bet a team who just might. Whereas Daniel went all in and McLaren ultimately lost, Fernando took a chance with a team who not long ago had hit rock bottom on a dire weekend in Australia and had no history of competing for world championships. How they laughed when that announcement came on that first morning of the summer break, that silly old fool Alonso, with his history of making bad career moves, walking into the burning building where Sebastian's Vettel love of racing had gone to die. He's a mercenary now, they said. He's finally accepted that third title is never going to come and decided to take the money instead. With three consecutive podiums for the first time in almost a decade, however, it is Alonso who is laughing now. My friend, let's go back in time to the summer break last year where the announcement came out that Fernando Alonso was walking away from Alpine Renault and going to the Aston Martin project led by Lawrence Stroll. What were your initial impressions at the time and what were your beliefs when that had happened? Well... If we all remember how that all went down, Mark, it was absolutely insane. Of course, first first (laughs) we had Sebastian Vettel announcing his retirement on his Instagram page. He just set one up. Everyone thought, oh, Sepp has an Instagram. I think Sergio Perez on Drive to Survive, the season just gone, actually was in an interview doing that for Netflix. And they told him Seb had an Instagram page and everyone was shocked. Then, of course, a day later, we got the announcement that Seb was retiring from the sport obviously it's something that some of us might have expected given the way the events played out but it was a huge shock a day later fernando alonso announces that he is joining aston martin in 2023 now that was crazy then we had the oscar piastri situation saying that you know alpine have said they're going to promote me i'm not doing that i'm going to mclaren and then we had that debacle with uh, the contract stipulations and all that stuff with Alpine and McLaren. Obviously, that eventually got sorted out. It was a crazy time. And the funniest part of that, and this is not me being arrogant, I was was as surprised as anybody when I came across this, but when I recorded my predictions video for the 2022 season, or the review of the predictions um, that we do every year, I went back, as you do, to what predictions you made earlier in that season. And I actually made the prediction that Fernando Alonso would replace Seb Vettel at Aston Martin in 2023. Incredible. Incredible. If you guys obviously think, oh no, he's chatting rubbish here, go back to my channel or on on my podcast, look for that. Uh, I think we did the, the review of the predictions late last year. I think it was in December 2022. So go back to that. Have a listen because 
it's got the footage there from that recording. So uh, it's time stamped and everything. So uh, you can't get around it. But look, I was Im- I was immensely impressed by that. I don't think I'm ever going to make a prediction that good ever in my <laughs> life. I'm actually quite proud of that, even though I love Seb to bits. But, you know, you've got to take the good with the bad. Overall, it was a huge shock. And I don't think many of us, you know, despite my prediction, I don't think many of us really saw that coming. I think, as you mentioned already, Mark, the... the the protection and the comfort of Alpine being solidified as the upper team in that midfield and looking comfortable, mind you, even though McLaren were good, it was more exacerbated by Lando Norris's brilliant talent rather than McLaren genuinely having a car that can compete with Alpine on a level playing field. And for Alonso to consider giving that up for Aston Martin, a team that were the seventh best overall, started 2022 poorly had to change their car halfway through, take a gamble on them to try and win a world championship. Nobody thought that was a good idea. It was nothing more than, I don't think it was just about the money. Um, Alpine only offered him a one plus one year contract, whereas Aston Martin offered him a two plus one option if he wanted it. So there was more comfort, more security there, which obviously would have appeased Alonso. I'm sure there would have been a bit more money as well. It's Lawrence Stroll's team. It's bound to be. But he ultimately made that decision because he knew Alpine weren't going to do much better or break into the top three. It just wasn't going to happen because whether it's the commitment or the facilities, Alpine, it's very Renault. They've always been that team that's been decent, but never quite been good enough to make it to the top three. Whether they want to or not is a different thing. Aston Martin just might. And he made that decision. And I tell you what, Mark, nobody is laughing now. Um, He's not winning races, but... The only thing stopping him is Max Verstappen and Red Bull right now, and that's not a bad place to be right now. Yeah, I think you did a fantastic job of summarizing the events of last summer, and I think if you reflect back on the analytics of your podcast over the course of the 12 months of calendar 2022, you'll probably find that any podcast that you did around that crazy, silly season that happened around June, July were probably your biggest hits, and they certainly were for us. But I remember thinking at the time as well that I kind of get why he was maybe looking to exit Renault Alpine, that obviously, you know what, for them to offer something more than that one plus one deal with the limited amount of funds available was always going to be a challenge because they would have to go to the Renault board and convince them that that was a smart business and strategic move. And obviously, Lawrence Stroll has near total autonomy when it comes to business decision making over at the Aston Martin unit. But I had thought at the time that, look, you know what, this is... This is much as much a marketing move for Aston Martin as it is a competitive move in terms of improving the Formula One team that for Lawrence Stroll, that he's invested hundreds of millions of dollars in this project, that it's important for him to be able to market that they have a real life real, real human being, a a world champion driving one of his cars. And that's why I always believed. And in addition to the suspicions that they wanted Sebastian Vettel there to help nurture and to help coach Lance Stroll along. But I honestly felt that this was more of a marketing play than it was anything else. And I'd become greatly discouraged by the Aston Martin project by 2022 because I had bought so much stock in that team in 2021. And I think maybe my expectations were a little bit misaligned in terms of the timeframe that they were 
actually working on. But never did I expect that we would be sitting here prior to Baku talking about the fact that Fernando Alonso has run off three consecutive podiums for the first time in a remarkable remarkable seven years. And obviously, you know, Lance came into this year as well, and there were some unique circumstances because he'd had to crash on the bike um, and he wasn't able to compete in winter testing. And he maybe, maybe rushed his return because that car looks so good in, in winter testing. And maybe he didn't want to give up that seat for even a single race for Dragovic, but a P6, a DNF, and then a P4. Maybe that P4 flattered him a little bit because of the circumstances and the outcome of that restart in, in Australia. But just the fact that Fernando Alonso is significantly, significantly outperforming Lance Stroll despite the same machinery just speaks to how much capacity he has as a racing car driver, despite the fact that he's now on the wrong side of of 40. And my friend, I'll kick this over to you, but you know, three races in so far, based on the Formula One landscape, do you see a do you see a world where and I was thinking about this last night when I was in bed that we can't possibly expect Red Bull to finish P1, P2 in every race, that there's going to be a DNF, there's going to be a collision, there's going to be a race or two that Red Bull doesn't win. Can you can you foresee a future where maybe Fernando Alonso finds his way onto the top step of the podium this year? It's distinctly possible. I think if anybody is going to win a race this year that isn't driving a Red Bull, it's most likely going to be Fernando Alonso at this point in time. We've had the first three races. Fernando, has, other than Max Verstappen, has probably been the best driver so far this season. I don't think many people can argue that. The car looks very good. Granted, we've been a very unique a unique set of circuits so far this year. So it hasn't really been tested at too many of the traditional Great ones call. yet. Great call. So I think we're going to learn more about the Aston Martin this year. But so far, it looks very handy. It looks good everywhere it needs to be. Obviously not as good as the Red Bull. But in terms of comparing to everyone else, they do look the second best right now. So if there is a day... And it probably will come because Red Bull have been far from bulletproof. You know, Perez has had issues at Melbourne. Max had issues at Jeddah. Even at Bahrain, they looked like they were nursing some potential issues when they had a huge lead ahead of them. Of course, we don't know how good that Red Bull really is yet. We've still got to wait and see because I think Red Bull are, to some degree, driving with the handbrake on. They're not exactly letting loose the full potential of that car just yet. Um, there's every possibility, I think, that if things don't go according to plan for Red Bull, Fernando Alonso is definitely in the prime seat right now to take advantage of that. So, you know, looking ahead for the season, Mark, if Fernando Alonso doesn't win a Grand Prix this season, given the current form book, I'd be very, very surprised. Something strange would probably have to happen. I know that might seem a little bit overconfident given how good Red Bull are right now, but as you correctly pointed out, nobody has won every single race in a season. The closest we got was in 88 with McLaren, Senna and Prost winning 15 out of the 16 for McLaren that season. So to win 23 races or whatever it is now, that would be an incredible achievement for Red Bull. But I think there's going to be a day where things won't go right for them. And I think if it doesn't, Fernando will be in the best place to snap up and take that take the W if he can. I think maybe the the next best point of comparison to obviously 88 is a great reference point, but I think in recent history you can maybe reflect on 2014 as well, which was the first year of the turbo hybrid era, and it was a period of absolute. 
I mean, it was the first year of a period of absolute Mercedes domination, but even during that year, Daniel Ricciardo won, what, three races? Like, he still found a way to get onto the podium, despite the fact that that was not a hugely problematic, but a hugely underpowered Renault turbo-hybrid engine, that things can happen, and again... I don't remember how many races we had in 2014, but it certainly wasn't over 20. And this year we have 23 races. So the more races you have, the more likelihood that you're going to see some unique circumstances arise. My friend, I want to pivot now to Ferrari. And I'm going to read what Oliver Harden had written on Planet F1 to help set this up. But Oliver writes, Ferrari's change at the top over the winter brought with it the tantalizing possibility that the team through either luck or judgment, had married the best of both worlds. It had a car designed by Mattia Bonato were to be fielded by a team organized by Frederick Vasseur, just what could be possible in 2023. As one era morphed into the next, was there a chance that Ferrari had just struck a golden sweet spot of car performance and strategic sharpness? Anticipation for the new season was at an all-time high following the best launch in F1 history at Marinello, where an evolution of last year's F1, F175, the car that had the most poles of 2022, was unveiled and Vassour made his first public appearance as team principal with the promise of addressing the glaring weaknesses of last season. Yet, it appears the stable platform that was supposed to be the car was actually built on sand, a reality that only now is beginning to dawn at Ferrari, still without a podium after the opening three races of 2023. On a grid increasingly made up of replica Red Bulls, Ferrari's dipping side pods might catch the eye, but much like Mercedes' zero-pod concept, have potentially outstayed they're welcome. Obviously, this is the single worst start to a season that Ferrari's had in many years. We're three races into the championship, and they're yet to yet to acquire a podium. Of course, there was a very, very close close call for, for Charles Leclerc before he unfortunately DNF'd early in the season. But is it too early to be panicking in the Ferrari camp that Clearly, it might be obvious now that you're not going to contend for a championship, but is the season a total write-off? Is this car, is the platform built on sand, as Oliver Harden writes? Should we be panicking? It's a hard one. Um, As a huge Ferrari fan, and you know, people that listen to this show that also listen to my show will attest to that, despite being called British Bias and Lewis Hamilton fanboy sometimes, um... Ferrari, it's a tough one. As I said, I don't think this season is a complete write-off in terms of Ferrari just completely giving up on the SF23 and and making a brand new car from scratch with the hope that they can beat Red Bull in 2024. We may get to a point soon, Mark, where that may have to be the case. I think that, that Ferrari have so far decided to continue with development on the current car to see if they can ease some ailments that they have i know they keep saying they've had some trouble correlating the performance of the car on track versus what they've been doing in the simulator and the wind tunnel at the moment we are in a cost cap era so it's not as simple as just starting again and hoping to have a brand new car later in the season where it could be competing for race wins and obviously not a world championship because you know that will be too far gone by then it probably already is by now and you know at the same time you've got to look at where you can improve the car in the short term. Like if Ferrari decided right now that all they're going to bring all these new parts that are similar to the Red Bull and put it on their car, they're still going to have other issues with the rest of the car. You know, a car is the sum of its parts. It's not just a case of, oh, we'll change the side pods like Mercedes have been talking about, or we'll change this and change that. All of a sudden, it's going to be a lot faster. It could be more slower or it could be even slower, more likely. So it's a tough one for Ferrari. They are... 
I think right now, it, I don't think it really matters what they do. I think 2023 could be considered a write-off in some regards. I still think they have to try and wrestle P2 in this Constructors' Championship, despite the slow start that they have. And, you know, we, we talk about the launch and how buoyant and optimistic Ferrari were at that point. Who'd have thought that looking after a few races, it would be the highlight of their season so far? It could turn out to be the highlight of their season, given how amazing that car launch was. It really was. And... I always think back to I can't remember who it was that said it, and I'd have and you know forgive me for this one, guys, because there is a very very famous engineer that said it, and I can't remember who it was. But Ferrari were very optimistic, quietly optimistic, but they were optimistic about reaching their targets. They were very open about the fact that they claimed that they reached their targets in terms of development and the design of their car on this simulator. And this particular engineer said quite famously if you're very optimistic about how easily it was to reach your targets, you obviously didn't set your targets high enough. And I think in a way that could be where Ferrari have gone wrong. Now, Ferrari, of course, with their car in particular, not to get too techy, um, but Ferrari did sacrifice downforce and cornering speed, which was a very strong asset or trait of their car last season, the F175 in favor of trying to form, find more straight line speed. What has really hurt Ferrari is whilst they have achieved that and overall the car is faster than what it was last year, I don't think anybody could have anticipated how quick Red Bull were going to be and how much they've improved. It's blindsided Ferrari. It's blindsided Mercedes to the point where they just didn't expect it. So, you know, you've got that. Then, of course, you've got the performances on track. Carlos Sainz has struggled to get to terms with this car. He hasn't been too bad. But he's not, you know, he will get better. Carlos is a very capable driver and he will get better, but it's taken him a while to get up to speed. Charles Leclerc has this incredible feel and ability about him where he can get into almost any car and extract the performance out of it. As you pointed out, very unlucky not to finish on the podium. He should have finished on the podium in Bahrain, but reliability issues once again, if it isn't the speed, holding Ferrari back. It, it may still be continuing to hold them back on engine performance. We don't know yet, but it does seem that Ferrari are struggling in that regard. And he has had a few erratic moments in Melbourne when he had that retirement, you know, and, and obviously the issues they had in qualifying. It's a very capable car in qualifying as well. Um, probably second best on the grid right now over one lap. But as we know, races are not won and lost over one lap in particular. You know, you have to go through the whole of Sunday to try and get the results. So, Right now, there's a lot to be concerned about with Ferrari. I wouldn't be panicking just yet. I do feel that under Fred Vasseur right now, he's, you know, this is a transition period as well because Matteo Bonotto, there was a lot of this car that was, you know, part Matteo Bonotto here. And you can't expect Fred Vasseur to be able to turn fortunes around overnight. Ferrari thought they were going to have a car that could compete for a world championship. And as it stands right now, it couldn't be further from the case. So I wouldn't be panicking just yet. But I do feel Ferrari at some point, maybe after Monaco or Barcelona, when we get to those races later on in the season, they will have to make that decision. Do we commit to the 2024 car or do we try to make 2023 work? I feel like it's going to be more the latter, but I think we just have to wait and see. To build on that point that you made about the field being largely blindsided by the pace that's coming out of that Red Bull this year, we shared an interesting race pace gained from 2022 to 2023 at the Australian Grand Prix uh, statistic last week on our news show. Aston Martin, their race pace improvement at Australia uh, improved by 3.15 seconds. Alpine was up 2.1. 
Haas was up 2.02. McLaren was up one and a half. Red Bull was up 1.35. And again, the context here is that they were blindingly quick relative to the rest of the field last year, and they built on that. But at the very, very, very bottom of the field, and of course, the sample was a little bit smaller because you saw Charles Leclerc go off so early, but Ferrari had only improved by half a second, which was worst of the field. The the other consideration, and you, you touched on something that resonated with me a little bit, which is... Frederick Vasseur largely inherited this car, and Oliver kind of comments on this as well, that, hey, you know, it's great that you have a Matteo Bonato car, and now you have Frederick Vasseur to steer the strategic ship, but ultimately, he inherited this car, and by the time he did so in early December, we were a week or two out from the winter shutdown, so the factory would have closed for two weeks at the back of December, and by that point, Frederick would have had very little ability to influence or inform the design and the trajectory of this car, that the car they rolled out for winter testing was largely a Matteo Bonato engineered car and if the car is flawed you're right you can you can continue to invest in it and you can continue to bring out parts but I don't know what the end game is whereas you could take the budget cap that is available to you this year and invest that in the 2024 Challenger the challenge of course Ferrari is that there's always going to be a marketing element that they have some very very high maintenance sponsors that contribute a very significant amount of money to that car and over here and in in North America we have this term tanking that hey you know what if your season's not looking so good you know what strip it down trade your top players and go all in for the tank to get a better draft pick and you see this in the NBA especially but you can almost see this in in Formula One now which is hey we're not going to necessarily not compete in the races but we're going to allocate the cost cap money that we have for 2023 for calendar 2023 and rather than sinking that money into our current car let's sink that into the 2024 car with the hopes that we're going to be more competitive next year i i would also ask you because this is something that i i think think rings rings in my ears quite a bit but obviously this team was brutalized last year in the press and on reddit and on social media because some of their strategic blunders but this is a is a team that's not without driver error as well. And and we saw that even with Charles Leclerc in, in Melbourne recently that, look, you know what, the team may commit issues, issues in the pit and there might be some strategic issues and obviously reliability issues are an absolute killer. But this team seems to have a disproportionate number of DNFs related to, to driver error. Do you think that there's one specific flaw to this team um, in terms of execution, or is it a series of different things that manifest itself into, into what we're seeing on the track this year and last? Um, I think it probably epitomizes the culture at Ferrari right now in that journalists or fans or onlookers everywhere just look at Ferrari and just expect it to not deliver on its objectives in winning a world championship for one reason or another and it doesn't really matter which one it's going to be you just know it's going to happen with Ferrari it's just a case of when and we saw this a lot in 2022 the strategy blunders that you mentioned was almost unforgivable in certain cases I mean look at Brazil last season when they put Leclerc out on, on what was on the dry tires or, or something like that. Yeah, and then it started raining Agreed. and then he wanted Agreed. to stay out. And, you know, driver mistakes as well. Leclerc made a few of them himself. Signs made a few earlier last season. And we are seeing a little bit of that this season, but I think it's been more down to the issues with the car rather than the driver issues. I think Melbourne was just... Leclerc was a bit aggressive, put himself, trying to recover too many positions because qualifying didn't go well for him. And, of course, Ferrari messed up that organization in qualifying with signs and Leclerc. Uh, I think Leclerc was saying, you know, great to have the uh, slipstream in turns three and four, where it's completely redundant. You don't need it there. So there is still that as well. And 
I, I think with Ferrari, I think you're going to see this for a while. Again, it's just the sum of its parts right now. And there's been a lot of change at Ferrari in terms of the organisational side, not just at the top with Bonotto and Fred Vasseur. There have been a, a few others like David Sanchez, obviously leaving the team to join McLaren eventually. Um, Enrico Cardile's position has been under threat from what I've been hearing, the head of, one of the head of Ferrari Aero as well in the chassis. So there is a lot of change going on at Ferrari. And of course, the new CEO, uh, Benedetta Wigner, Obviously wants to lay his marker down. I'm not quite sure how he's going to do that. Not coming from an F1 background. Maybe he'll let Fred Vasseur get on with it. We'll have to wait and see. It's not been very Ferrari to live and let live. They've been very hands-on, almost micromanagement, which is obviously never really a good thing in many organisations. Nevertheless, Ferrari. So we'll see. To Ferrari's credit, though, Mark, I will give him one... Uh, I will give him one positive appraisal, and that's with Matteo Bonotto. Now... I was a huge supporter of Matti Bonotto. I wanted him to stay because I felt like it was a bit unfair to fire him on the basis that Ferrari didn't win the world championship. He promised to get them in a championship fight. And I think for half a season, he did that. And it was a very good car, relatively speaking, at the time. Obviously, now they've probably missed their best chance, quite frankly, in this turbo in this new era of racing. But we'll see. That said... When they made the decision at the time, I didn't think it was the right decision to make. I felt like he should have been given another year. Seeing what Ferrari have produced in 2023 and where they are right now, if they hadn't have fired him at the end of last season, they most certainly would have fired him now. And they would have already lost that three-month period that they've obviously had under Fred Vasseur to think, oh, this car is not working. Where do we go forward? So at the very least, they're three or four months ahead of where they would have been if Matteo Bonotto had still been at the helm and probably been fired after the first few races going as badly as they have done. I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. And I remember jumping on a reaction podcast back last winter when Matteo Bonazzo was and I, I keep saying fired but ultimately he left because I think he understood that the writing was on on the wall for the lack of a better cliche but I don't know if you saw this earlier today Ferrari chairman John Elkin's brother Lapo Elkin um, had tweeted this and the tweet has now been deleted but again Lapo Elkin Ferrari chairman John Elkin's brother tweeted this Ferrari needs heart seriousness in a winning team inside and outside of the pits it's time to wake up enough with politics and games we will never win like this and he goes on Santander for me terrible bank but an interesting tweet that has subsequently been been deleted but it's always a little bit alarming when Ferrari's chairman or the chairman of any professional organization on the scale of Ferrari is being criticized on social media by close relatives any other thoughts you know if if you if you had the opportunity to to lead that organization either as a chairman or an executive or as a team principal, uh, would you would you trust Frederick Vasseur to steer the ship at this point? Like I think you make a great point that had they kept Bonato, they would fire him now. And then what do you do in terms of backfill? How are you going to be able to recruit talent to come in mid season, midstream, even even if there's somebody available? Do they want to sign up for that? So I think in hindsight it was probably the right move. But from your perspective, what does this team need to be successful? if not this year then next year and the years beyond for me uh, it, it's a tough one because I, I don't want to make the comparisons too much to other sports but you see at the moment of course you know based on today's result at the point of recording you know your perspective on this might be a bit different wherever you're listening but I always think back to what happened at my you know, football team, Arsenal Football Club, and what happened there a few years ago and how it was in disarray. They brought in a new young manager in Mikel Arteta who, 
um, a lot of people thought was completely inexperienced and not ready for a job of that magnitude. And he made a lot of changes in and out of the club. And it was a long process. It had many bumps on the road, many moments where people thought, oh, we shouldn't be in this position. And a few years later, based, you know, today's result wasn't great, but they're currently sitting top of the Premier League, going toe-to-toe with one of the best sides in world football. And everybody is absolutely loving it right now. And it's a great decision. And the club is going from strength to strength. To try and, you know, summarise that and bring it to where Ferrari are right now, I do feel a similar foundation rip-up. You know, as you mentioned already with teams in the US or, or in Canada where they, you know, if they're tanking, you know, they just kind of commit to what's going on, rip everything up, sell their best assets and start again or, you know, get the benefit of the draft, if you like, depending on whatever sport they're in. Um, obviously, they don't have drafts in Formula One, but the logic is the same. And I feel Ferrari... They are sort of doing that already. They are trying to go in a different direction. However, I do feel they need to commit to a project or a process, one that isn't going to yield returns in the short term, but one that, you know, is going to take a few years, similar to what they did for 2022. You know, they gave up 2021 to focus on 2022. And, you know, that it did pay off to some degree. Obviously, they didn't win a world championship, but it got them back to where Ferrari should be in the conversation, in the fight for race wins, and winning some of them and obviously fighting for a world championship, which ultimately that's what they did, even though it obviously fizzled out the way that it did halfway through the season. I feel Ferrari needs to try and figure out a way to do that. If it's bringing new people or make it a much more comfortable place to work, you know, Ferrari is often attributed with the blame culture. Whereas if you don't win, you're fired, you know, they don't learn from their mistakes. They just bring in someone else and hope that they can deliver something different. It's absolutely madness, quite frankly, Ferrari, of course, they tried to uh, replace Bonotto with Christian Horner. They tried with Andres Seidel. Both of them denied the job. Andres Seidel went to Audi uh, to work as their CEO there. And of course, he'll be a big part of the team when that comes to the grid in 2026. Christian Horner obviously didn't want that job. He was flattered to be linked with it, but he was never going to take that job. It's a poison chalice. Why would he leave Red Bull to take Ferrari on? So... Yeah, I think Ferrari have to commit to where they're going right now. They have to make their mind up, commit to a direction and just hope that it works. And if it doesn't, learn why it didn't work and then just, you know, try and start again. Eventually they will get it right. It's Ferrari. At some point they will get it right, despite being known as underachievers or, you know, performing less than what they probably should do given their stature. As I said, it's a tough one, but... um, they have to find a direction and commit to it right now. And if that means ripping up all the foundations and starting again, then so be it, really. We're going to have to be patient one way or another, Mark, because the way Red Bull are going, it'd be hard to imagine anyone other than them winning a championship over the next I few think you, years. I think you summarized that beautifully. And of course, Ferrari, for those that don't remember, haven't won a championship since 2007. That was the year Kimi Raikkonen took the, took the WDC ahead of Mercedes teammates Lewis Hamilton and Fernando Alonso. Of course, Alonso went back to Renault for 2008. In 2008, Lewis Hamilton won the Drivers' Championship, and and Felipe Massa was just a point, a painful point behind. Um, and of course, that's being that's being challenged in court again because of some recent revelations that uh, the FIA and 
Uh, Bertie Eccleston were aware, of course, of the cheating scandal, the Crashgate scandal in Singapore of that same year. But you look at the period of the V8s in 2010 to 2012, 2013, you know, obviously Fernando had a couple of competitive years there. Ferrari struggled initially in the turbo hybrid era, 14, 15, 16. Uh, they became much more competitive in 17, 18, 19. Of course, in 19, their season effectively fell apart uh, after the... After the FIA and Ferrari had a fairly stern, though highly secret, conversation about what may or may not have been happening with their power unit, and that obviously set them back a little bit. But I think you're right that they committed, that that 2021 in so many ways was a write-off, and they committed to 2022. But the challenge now is, what would you commit for? Do, do you go all in on 24 or 25, knowing that the regulations are going to change again in 26? Like, we're obviously going to have a, a completely, completely refreshed engine formula. We're going to keep a V6 1.6 liter turbo, but the electrification of that system is going to be wildly different. And I think all of the teams, Ferrari included, are desperately working at getting those internal combustion engines on the test bench and starting to work through some of the, the gremlins that are going to be associated with those highly complex electrical systems, of course, minus the MG, MGUH, but but you got to wonder that if this isn't the year and they don't think they're going to be successful this year, how much do you invest in 24 and 25? And at what point do you start looking towards 26? And and if you start looking long-term and you start thinking about 2026 is that year that you're really going to be able to compete for a championship when the when the entire slate is cleaned, at least from a, a power unit perspective, because of course in 26, Red Bull is going to make the shift from the Honda supplied power unit to the the collaborative Ford Red Bull powertrains power unit that maybe there's an opportunity to be successful there. But what does that do to the engagement of your drivers in the meantime and Charles Leclerc and in Carlos Sainz that that you're right that I think especially given Red Bull's immediate domination, I don't. I don't see them being successful this year, at least not in terms of competing for race wins. And then the question is, how far in advance do they have to start planning for a period of competitiveness? Because I don't see at this point that anyone's going to be able to challenge Red Bull in a meaningful way on a consistent basis in 24 or possibly even 25. My friend, I want to take another quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk about one of the rookies who joined the Formula One grid this year after having a one race cameo last year at Monza when he scored a points finish for the Williams team. We'll take a quick break and see you on the flip side. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton. I am being joined by the one, the only, Mr. Adam Burns of the DNF1 podcast, straight out of the United Kingdom. Adam's joining us very, very late here. It's late on a Sunday night. He's obviously trying to get ready for the busy work week ahead, but he took some time out to join us and talk a little bit about Formula One. And this week, we're really talking about some of the common predictions that people, uh, myself included, had for the season. And one of the predictions that people had 
had was that Nick DeVries would wipe the floor with Yuki Sonoda. And I'm going to read here from that Oliver Harden piece in PlanetF1.com. In his stand-in appearance for Williams at Monza last year, Nick DeVries managed to look more capable and composed in one race than Canadian Nicholas Latifi did in three full seasons and 2023 teammate Yuki Sonoda ever had at AlphaTauri. So where did it all go wrong? Did the nature of that weekend, Monza straight suiting the rocket ship Williams flatter DeVries, had Sonoda taken a great leap forward in 2023, or is Nick simply a victim of circumstance in an Alpha Tauri team who've lost their way both and in their relevance, or all of the above? As one of the most decorated drivers outside of F1 over recent years, champion in F2 and Formula E, DeVries was widely expected to inherit the role of team leader, but has been convincingly outperformed by Sonoda to date. He has been unfortunate at times, an engine change saw him miss the entire final practice session in Saudi Arabia, but already 28, his status as one of the oldest debutants in modern times is revealing. With Mercedes customers Williams taking the paddock by surprise in 21, signing the Red Bull affiliated Elbon to succeed George Russell over the Merck back DeVries, previously dropped from McLaren's junior scheme in 2019, reservations about his ultimate potential are nothing new. Oliver makes a really great point, and I don't know about you, but I think I had exceptionally strong expectations for DeVries coming into this year. Of course, he won the Formula 2 championship in 2019, uh, albeit in a relatively weak class. Of course, he he beat Nicholas Latifi to the championship. He won a Formula E championship. Of course, I'm not as close to Formula E as I am Formula 1, so I don't want to kind of comment on the competitiveness of that individual championship, but clearly he's a decorated driver and he's been around some world-class organizations, including Mercedes, for a number of years. So far this year, if you look at race classification, if you look at race pace, if you look at practice and qualifying, Yuki is either significantly outperforming him based on absolute sheer talent or Yuki's state. I don't, man, I don't even know what I like. I'm rambling here because I'm trying to, I'm trying to articulate my thoughts around DeVries in that I expected more from him this year and maybe I expected less from Yuki. But so far, by any measure, Yuki's significantly outperforming his 20 year, eight year old rookie teammate. Your thoughts on DeVries so far? Is he, is he what you thought he would be? Do you think there's more in the tank? Or maybe there's a reason why he didn't get a seat on the Formula One grid until this is 28th year. Um, well, when it comes to getting on the Formula One grid, I think Nick DeVries, obviously he was a part of the McLaren program for so many years. That obviously didn't work out. And he's really had to graft his way through the junior categories in, in F2 or, you know, at the time. And, you know, he was a very fierce competitor there. He raced up against a lot of drivers that have come through that series into Formula One. He's now got a seat himself after a stint in Formula E. And of course, he had that great race last year at Monza. I always felt as good a performance as that was at Monza. I felt that there was, it was very circumstantial. It was a crazy race to say the least anyway. And in a Williams that was very difficult in terms of managing its peaky downforce from last season, it was always quite handy in straight line. So not to take anything away from the performance of Nick DeVries, but I felt like he did a great job in that one-off race. But I always felt it was a little bit premature to say that based off that one performance alone, he should definitely be driving a Formula One car full time. Now, of course, he did 
drive of quite a few Formula One cars in 2022. I think he drove in the Aston Martin. I think he did a stint in the Mercedes. And I think it, it might have been the Alpine or Alfa Terry, one of the two. Um, you know, he, pretty much that um, living embodiment of the meme when you have an account somewhere and you get a free trial and then you set up loads of different accounts to get free trials. It's a bit like that. <laughs> If I can think yeah, of a comparison, yeah. you just change the skin or the race suit and there you go. Uh, so he has plenty of experience driving Formula One cars, particularly this modern era of F1 car, which I think probably was a bit of a sweetener. And, you know, I don't think he was the first choice at Alpha Tauri. I know Colton Hurtel was definitely an option that particularly Red Bull wanted to get in the Alpha Tauri. But of course, Colton wasn't able to get the super license points that he needed to get in an F1 car. If he'd have won the indie series that Alex Pillow had won last season, he would have most certainly probably been in Formula One. So we'll have to wait and see what happens with Colton. But everything kind of panned out where Nick DeVries was meant to be in the Williams. Then he ended up in the Alpha Tauri. Now, in terms of his performance so far this season, I don't think he's been too bad. The Alpha Tauri is not a good car. Uh, I think Franz Toss said, basically, the car struggles on the straights, it struggles in the corners, it struggles in high downforce, low downforce, under braking, turning. Other than that, it's a great car. And he even went as far as saying that he doesn't trust his engineers or, you know, his aerodynamicists right now because they're trying to tell him good things. But right now, he's not seeing it. Now, those comments obviously perhaps a little bit reckless, but I can understand the frustration from a team that wanted to try and finish in the top five and they finished ninth last year the only team worse than them was a dreadful Williams and they're not doing that much better this season the midfield looks a bit more compact so there's room for improvement there and I don't think they have to find too much room to make a bigger gain but they are still struggling so I don't think Nick DeVries is performing terribly mind you but there is a noticeable deficit to his teammate Yuki Tsunoda now when we talk about Yuki I think he's gone into this season in a bit of a difficult situation where the only way he's going to come out of it looking good is if he absolutely dominates Nick DeVries. And to his credit so far, that's exactly what he's doing. You know, if he'd beaten Nick DeVries and it was only a small margin that he's beaten him by, people will say, oh, well, Yuki's been in an F1 car for three years now. Nick DeVries is still finding his feet. That's expected. And he knows the team very well, whereas Nick DeVries is learning a new team. So that's never an easy thing to do. Only the really special drivers like Oscar Piastri, for example, who's come through at the same time and obviously quite a bit younger than Yuki uh, not Yuki Sonoda, than Nick DeVries, is obviously looking like he's going to be a star of the future and he's finding his feet well at McLaren, despite the difficulties that they're having. So I think for now, Nick DeVries is doing okay. Now, I don't think that's um, a glowing reference, personally. I don't. Um, that's not me saying, oh, he's, you know, he's doing a great job. You know, Alpha Tower, he shouldn't expect more from him. He still has to find his way. And as you said, Mark, in Jeddah, he had that issue with his car where he wasn't able to do much running. And he was only a few attempts off his teammate in qualifying. So I think if Nick DeVries starts to gradually improve as this season goes along, I think for now, given how light the depth is in that Red Bull Academy, I think that might be enough to keep him in the team for another year. Yuki Tsunoda, on the other hand, has to keep doing what he's doing. He got a point in Australia last time out. He finished P11 twice in Bahrain and um, in Jeddah. Of course, he, he nearly finished P11 in uh, Australia, which would have been a tied record, I think, for the most consecutive finishes in a position that isn't first. So he just about avoided that because of Sainz's penalty at the end of that race. So interesting to be seen. But as far as Nick DeVries is concerned, 
I think it's way too early to judge him just yet. And yeah, the Williams result in Monza, yeah, maybe that was a bit of a one-off, but I think we need to give this kid time. He's a good driver, um, but I just think he needs a bit more time. And he's got a very good teammate who seems to be finding his feet a bit more in F1. I think listener Bert Pinkerton would probably be very happy with your with your response and probably less so with the way I teed that up. But, you know, we flash back to 2017. And of course, Lance Stroll is close to our heart and I have real estate on Lance Stroll Island. But Lance Stroll had a retirement in his first three races in Formula One. Of course, he made the jump directly from F3. So the circumstances might be different. But my point being that he struggled initially with the car and he struggled initially with the tires, especially. And here he is, you know, six, seven years later with 125 Grand Prix under his belt. And of course he's set up to be very successful this year with that team so I think that's fair and just kind of back it up as well on the Nick DeVries thing I think it's important to provide a little bit of context but in 2016 he competed in the GP3 series finishing sixth in 2017 he had his first season in the FIA Formula 2 Championship finishing 7th. 2018, he competed in the same championship finishing 4th. In 2019, he competed in the FIA Formula 2 Championship. That was the year he won the championship, uh, stealing it away from Nicholas Latifi, who had, of course, got off to that very strong start. In 2019-20, he competed in Formula E with the Mercedes-Benz EQ team finishing 11th. He also competed in the FIA World Endurance Championship, LMP2, finishing 10th. In 2020, he was very busy competing in the European Le Mans Series, finishing 5th. He also competed in Formula 1 as a test driver for the Mercedes-AMG Patronus F1 team. In 2021, he competed in F Formula E again, again with Mercedes finishing first, clinching that championship. And then in 2021, he was a reserve driver for Formula One for the Mercedes team. And then in 2021-22, he competed in Formula E finishing ninth. And then in 2022, he was a very busy man. He was a reserve third driver for Mercedes-AMG, a reserve driver for McLaren, and a test driver for Aston Martin Aramco Formula One team. And of course, he also got his debut in Formula One with Williams at Monza. And of course, he is now three races deep into his career at Scuderia AlphaTauri. And I, I also appreciate, my friend, that you did a really good job of setting up the circumstances around AlphaTauri, that if this was a team that was fourth or fifth in the championship and leading the midfield and he was still underperforming, I think that's fair. But I think it's I think it's important that you reference the fact that Franz Toss has publicly, publicly uh, articulated and verbalized his concerns with the development of this car, which is all the more shocking given the fact that it's blessed with the same fantastic Honda power unit that its sister team Red Bull has, and the fact that they obviously rely on Red Bull to procure as many parts as are legal within the regulations of the sport. Maybe before we move on to our final topic, um, comment on the performance, and you, and you mentioned Oscar Piastri, but of course Oscar Piastri is a rookie this year. We have Logan Sargent with Williams, and we also have, of course, the 28-year-old Nick DeVries with, with the AlphaTauri team. But your comments generally on the other rookies that are on the F1 grid this year, your initial impressions based on what you've seen so far? Um, I think with Logan Sargent, it's going to be a bit more of the same. Um, perhaps not as much pressure as what Nick DeVries is doing, because granted, I think we can all agree Logan Sargent has the, the more or the faster teammate in Alex Albon. You know, if we compare Alex Albon to Yuki Tsunoda... Yuki's good, but Alex Albon is better at right now. And, you know, so there is that difficult task of trying to compete with Alex on an equal footing. But Logan right now, you know, the car's not fantastic. It's certainly an improvement on what it was last season. It's definitely in the midfield. It's not the slowest car on the grid. I'll say that much. So I think Logan's doing OK. I don't to be fair to him. I don't think too much is expected of Logan Sargent this season. I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up finishing the season in P20. And I don't think that's a discredit to Logan. I think he's a very capable driver. 
obviously wasn't Williams's first choice. I think he was like their third choice, quite frankly. So, you know, I, I think he will find his feet and he will get better. I don't think this is a Latifi situation by any stretch. And obviously, you know, we want to put some... Um, you know, put some credit on Latifi's name, if you like. You know, he did do okay at certain points. He just didn't have the consistency and pace of a George Russell um, in order to survive in a team when, obviously, the team didn't need to rely on the money that he brought in. So, yeah, I think Logan Sargent's doing okay for now. If Logan Sargent can avoid situations like we had in Australia at the restart where he practically T-boned De Vries into turn one, then I think he'll do okay. So, you know, he's fine there. Oscar Piastri, definitely the driver that we need to keep an eye on this season. A lot of people giving glowing praise and glowing references to him. It does seem that he's not hindered by the same issues that Daniel Ricciardo had at McLaren. But to, you know, to Ricciardo's credit, I think McLaren were as much to blame for that poor form as he was because it was a dreadful car. And Lando Norris is doing a phenomenal job at trying to... Um, I suppose, cover those those ailments by how brilliant he is at driving a car. And obviously that's not good for development because you want to see where your car is struggling. And if Lando's driving brilliant, it's almost like, well, we don't have to worry about that too much. He's kind of driving around those issues. Oscar seems to be of cut from the same cloth. And as I said, it's a very small pool of data, but for anyone that's followed Piastri's career so far in junior categories and know how good this kid really is, you will know why Alpine fought tooth and nail to try and keep him or why McLaren fought hard to get him under the circumstances. And, you know, he got some good points in Australia at his home circuit. So, you and, and you know, he was pretty good qualifying-wise. He's up there with his teammate. And right now, that's all McLaren can ask for from Oscar Piastri to really be competitive. They're obviously not expecting him to be as good as Lando, but he's not too far away at the moment. And if this is the start of something special, I think McLaren have got themselves a real gem here. My only concern is, will they be able to develop a car that's that's worthy of having drivers like Lando Norris and Oscar Piastri in their team over the next few years? Time will certainly tell. Adam, let's pivot to the last topic of the day. And I, I was debating whether we talk about Williams or, or Nico Hulkenberg, but I think I'd like to talk about Williams. And I think the general consensus was coming out of 2021 and 2022 and 2020 and 19 and 18 before it, that there was every reason to expect that Williams would struggle once again this year. And of course, there were some maybe shock moves from a leadership perspective in Grove during the offseason. But Oliver Harden writes, at the turn of the year, the decline and fall of Williams was captured by the thought of two silent, empty offices at Grove. The positions of team principal and technical director held by Frank Williams and Patrick Head for much of the team's histories were left vacant as the sun rose on 2023. Following the departures of Yost Capito and FX de Maison in December, Williams were a team devoid of any leadership at a time they needed it most. Already anchorless adrift, bottom of the championship for four of the last five seasons. Surely this was a team reaching the end of the road in its current form. Williams so far, obviously, I think that they are operating at a very significant deficit to the rest of the grid, both in the terms of the facilities and the infrastructure that's available to them that may have been world-class 20 years ago, but is certainly lagging now. A, a team that is running at a deficit in terms of experienced leadership, familiar with the organization and the people capital inherent within it, um, but also a deficit in terms of where that car is and where that car needs to be. Obviously, they made a big signing, bringing over a rock star from Mercedes in the last few months to help lead this team on its journey into relevance 
in Formula One. But your initial impressions on Williams in 2023 and whether they are equipped and suited to be successful in the future or whether more still needs to be done to get them into a more competitive space. Well, I mean, first of all, more does need to be done at Williams. This I think that the acquisition of James Vowles to replace Josca Pito was a very good move. Um, Josca Pito obviously has a very good racing pedigree and, you know, the hope was that he was going to be able to put Williams back on the right track. However, there was a huge gulf in terms of what Josca Pito was hoping for versus what Williams were going to provide. And bear in mind, Williams did provide, Doralton Capital did provide a lot of resource to Josca Pito and, there was an obvious lack of alignment in the departments at the Williams F1 team. I mean, this was a team that was dominating F1 in the 90s. And, you know, you fast forward 20, almost 30 years, you'd never expect Williams to be in the position that they are now, given the rich racing pedigree that they have. But Jos Capito was never really able to address those issues and, and the lack of synergy between certain departments in the team. It, it also took, you know, and, and, and ended certain... Um, tenures of Paddy Lowe, for example, that came over from Mercedes. He obviously struggled a lot there. So it's not a surprise that it happens to Oscar Pito too. I think the way that he went out saying that, you know, he felt like he was sort of not so much being handcuffed, but he just kept complaining about the lack of resource available. So obviously they had to make the decision to bring in someone like James Fowles in. There was an interim period where I don't really think Williams was sure if they were going to be able to get someone that was capable in. And maybe this is similar to the Arteta example that I mentioned earlier. And, and look, you know, for comparison purposes, I, I don't expect James Vowles to turn Williams into a world championship competing team or world champion winning team in four years. I mean, Arteta hasn't done that at Arsenal yet. We'll have to wait and see. But, you know, like for like, I don't expect that to happen in Formula One. It's a little bit more difficult to do that. That being said, I like the direction that Williams want to go in. They've got a young, hungry, successful man in James Vowles. From his history and background at Mercedes, he knows how a winning team looks. He knows what a winning team needs to be. He can bring that to Williams. And all the noises coming out of Williams and other teams and people that know James right now, they're all positive about what James wants to do at Williams. And it's very early days. If Williams back James Vowles, Given the resource he needs, the people there, whether he needs to bring people in, will have to wait and see, or they get on board with the vision that he has for them going forward. I can only see Williams growing from strength to strength. I don't know if this is going to turn into a championship challenge or even potentially competing for bigger points or finishing on the podium on a regular basis. I think we're talking five, maybe six years down the line at best, quite frankly. I mean, let's be realistic here. Uh, everybody's vying out for the same thing here. So it's not as simple as just turning up and all of a sudden you're world champions. You know, it took Red Bull, like, how long did it take them? Like, It took Red Bull Mercedes many years before they eventually got there. And a lot of resources, which Williams don't technically have right now, the budget cap will certainly help that. But of course, it, you know, it's building blocks at this point is what I'm trying to say. So it's a step in the right direction. That's the best I could probably say for Williams. I hope it does produce some tangible gains based on what they produced last season. And the improvements that they've made compared to where they were last season, which obviously James wouldn't have been a part of, that does show that there are a lot of people at Williams that know what they're doing and they are capable of making those steps forward. I just sincerely hope that James is able to take that on and take them to the next level. And I have absolute faith that Williams can definitely do that. It's been a long time coming and F1 needs Williams in the fight. It shouldn't be at the back. 
Dalton Capital scooped up Williams for what can now be perceived or interpreted as a bit of a as a bit of a discount. So Dalton had scooped in and took over Williams for two hundred million. I think roughly or reportedly about two hundred million dollars back in twenty twenty. Um, and of course, Frank Williams and Claire Williams almost immediately exited. Um, and of course, that gave Dalton Group a, an opportunity to have a fresh start. We're now three years into the Dalton tenure. And of course, things have changed significantly. You speak to the fact that um, FX de Maison is gone. Jos Capito is gone. He was seen as the savior. Of course, he had huge success with Volkswagen, especially on the rallying side. And now you've brought in somebody who's got immediate, recent, real-world, tangible experience with a world-class organization with Mercedes. And I like that point that you make about he knows what has to happen and the structures and the infrastructures that are required to be a world-class championship-caliber team. What do you think is the objective of Doralton here? You know, you're in the UK. You might hear some buzz that we don't pick up on. Is Doralton led by Matthew Savage? Is there objective to own this team long term and extract value from it through success on the track and through attracting world class sponsors? Is there objective to to make it more competitive and particularly and then potentially sell it off, or is it unclear what their long term, short term motivations are? being in the the world of Formula One. So from what we've heard and what we've read about Doralton Capital since they acquired Williams a few years back, the ambition has always been to be a successful Formula One team. Now, I can't say that I know if they've actually quantified what success looks like to them. But I think if we want to look at it from a business perspective, and I know people probably won't appreciate me saying this, and, and look, I, I say this, Lucy, because I probably don't know. Most likely I don't. So, you know, take what I say at face value and, and don't take it too seriously if you, if you think differently, and that's absolutely fine if you do. But I kind of look at what Doroton Capital are doing with Williams right now, and I feel like they are protecting and investing in an asset. And I strongly want to use the word asset here for the purpose of my argument here. I feel like they obviously want Williams to be relatively successful, but I don't believe success for Doralton Capital is a world championship. Of course, if they achieve that, that's fantastic. I do think they're more likely to be chasing the long-term tangible returns here in terms of a finance gain. That could take the form in increased revenue over the years that they have this Williams team. And of course, Mark, we've seen so many potential suitors trying to get on the grid like Andretti, Pantera, Audi, of course, coming into the sport. Porsche have tried getting into the sport. F1 is in a much healthier place than it was in 2020 when the pandemic was going on and Doralton came in to save Williams at a discounted price you mentioned. I mean, $200 million, that won't even buy your way into Formula One anymore as, as an initial fee. If you wanted to start a team, you probably need to have a billion dollars in your disposal to start a team from scratch and good pedigree and equipment available to you. They managed to get in and buy an already established F1 team with a rich pedigree in history, which obviously sponsors are going to go for because of that. They just want the team to be stable, financially secure and making improvements on the track. And to their credit, that's exactly what Williams are doing right now, even though they're bottom of the constructors and they were last season as well. Williams are moving forward. They're not literally in intensive care when it comes to their finances right now. They're in a healthy place. I just feel, I don't think it's going to be a short-term gain. I don't think Doralton Capital are going to be here for another year, wait for someone to come in and bid for the team. I mean, it might happen. You know, 2026 is fast approaching. We may see 
Porsche do something crazy and come in and offer a ridiculous amount of money. We might see Andretti do it and set up a UK base. We don't know at this point in time. It could happen if the price is right. But I just feel with the American market expanding, we've got races in Miami. We've got races in Vegas this year. Of course, we already have the race in Austin. The US market is one that hasn't really been tapped into yet. Doriton Capital being a, an American-based firm, unless I'm mistaken, that is important to them. I'd be very surprised mm -hmm. yes, if they, yes, yep. you know, these people know what they're doing. You know, it's not for me, a measly old accountant to tell them how to run their business. They know what they're doing. So I do think that these guys are in it for the long haul. But I think success for them is more about making this team a more attractive entity for sponsorships, kind of similar to what McLaren are doing with Zach Brown, more than winning a world championship. If they manage to do that as well, of course, that's fantastic. But I do think this is more business driven, but they've done a lot to put Williams in a good place. It's not like if they go, Williams are, you know, ruined, for example. They are an attractive option for a lot of businesses right now. And it's a great time to be involved in Formula One. The revenue is good and everybody wants their piece of the pie. But obviously, not everyone can get in. Doriton are already there. So that's half the battle. You have to think in hindsight that the purchase of Williams by Dalton, led by Chairman Matthew Savage, was an absolute masterstroke on the cusp of a financial upswing that the, it, it, you know, obviously I, I feel emotionally connected to the Williams family, having supported this team and followed this team for decades and decades and decades. It was it was unfortunate, although possibly timely, that they exited the sport simply because they could no longer afford to finance a Formula One team. But you also think, boy, if they'd been able to hold on one more year, two more years, they could have extracted so much more value from this team in terms of the sale. I also very much like what you were saying, and I think it's important uh, to kind of articulate that success for owners isn't necessarily winning a world championship. It's being competitive and the introduction of the cost cap makes that a lot, although of course we're not necessarily seeing it now, but could potentially in the long term kind of flatten the competitive curve and bring the group, bring the field a little bit closer together. And and obviously I'm still confident that that's going to happen. And I'm still confident that the current regulations and the 26 regulations will help to help to create more um, or help to limit the competitive disadvantage and the competitive spread that we see in the field. But I think you're right that the value of F1 sponsorships is so, so huge. And we've heard both from Zach Brown and from Christian Horner that they're turning away sponsors because they literally just don't have enough space on the cars anymore. And if you talk about a world where your cost caps $130 million and you're spending $20 million to pay your drivers, anything that you earn in excess of that, either through the constructors or through sponsorship money or through heritage money, that's effectively gravy. And if you could turn a profit of 50, 60, $70 million a year on this team, uh, it's going to pay off that $200 million upfront investment very quick. And then maybe you sell a stake in this team. Maybe you sell the whole piece. Um, and to your point that if you're going to start a team today, it's probably a billion dollars. And you know, if you sell a team, what is it worth outright that it could be a billion or $200 billion purchase, but they're probably in no rush because I don't think there's anybody out there waving the flag saying, Hey, the valuation of current F1 teams is going to crash because we anticipate a decline in interest in, in TV numbers. Whereas I think it's the opposite that there's an awful lot of untapped potential in the, in the valuation of this sport. 
My friend, I cannot thank you enough for joining me today. In the absence of Daily, you were a phenomenal guest with some brilliant insights, and I think our listeners probably very much appreciate hearing from somebody other than Mark Daly or Mark Hamilton, and I think your insights and your ability to articulate your awareness of what's happening in the Formula One world is, is fantastic. How can people find you on social media? How can they follow you, and how and where can they check out the DNF1 podcast? Well, thanks, Mark. And of course, yeah, you two listeners, I hope that a lot of what I was saying was making sense. And I know sometimes it can be a little bit long winded and I do tend to try and go off on a tangent sometimes. But uh, no, hopefully that all was okay, and you guys uh, enjoyed that. If you want to listen to more of my ramblings on my own show, uh, you can find me on DNF1. You can find us on YouTube. If you watch your podcast on video versions, we're on there. Just t- type in DNF1, subscribe to the channel and like the content. And of course, let us know that you came over in the comment section that you listened to Scuderia F1 and let us know, say hi. Of course, if you listen to us on your favorite podcasting platform, same thing there. Just type in DNF1, F1 podcast. We're there on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere where you get your podcasts. And of course, if, of course, if you turn up, leave us a five-star review. We do shout-outs on the show, and we'd really appreciate your support. So thanks for having me, guys. I really have enjoyed coming on the show this evening. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. If you want to follow us, you can find us on social media, Twitter, especially at f one pod If you like what we do, just as Adam was saying, I cannot stress enough how much a rating on Spotify means to us and how much a rating and a review on Apple also means to us. Thanks again. We'll be back on Thursday with a new show. We're still two weeks out from Baku, but we have lots of F1 content coming up for you. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you again soon. Bye for now. I feel like a locomotive sipping, drinking Arizona. Mixtape just around the corner. Did a lot in California. Can't wait to drop this on you. Yeah, they gon' have fun with that. Smash like song. I'm in my songs. Gonna break through like a running back.